This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Episode number 352, The Thing, and The Thing, and The Thing from Another World. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. I am your father's best friend's plumber. Versus Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did was that He created something. So we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Strangers and Aliens. I'm Ben. Ben Avery and I am here with my semi-annual, biannual. Uh, I I'm not sure. Yeah, about twice a year. Is that right, John? Uh, I, you know, it, up up and up until this year, it's actually been an uh, an annual thing. I it, we've been doing the Halloween thing, with the exception of one year, pretty much annually. Um, this year we did two because we did a. Uh, we did the, the color from space yeah yeah or the color out of space rather um and we did that during at the beginning of the lockdown so and here we're doing this at either the end of the lockdown or the beginning of the next lockdown oh, um, so, <laughs> uh this one actually fits uh, almost better like the last one color uh color out of space that one was interesting when we watched that and you were like i feel a little weird <laughs> watching some of this as right. you know people are moving to zoom calls and things like that it, it's one of those things nothing gets your mind off of the terrible things that are going on than watching terrible things happen to other people i suppose <laughs> yeah unfortunately i remembered the movies as things were happening with covid and i thought about like oh yeah there's there's some interesting dynamics here then i actually did watch the thing uh, 82, uh, a few months ago, like in the heat of everything. And I was just mm-hmm. like, wow, maybe I shouldn't watch this right now. Um, and now I've gone and watched the other, all three of them again in preparation for this. And it's really interesting, the thematic stuff that comes out of these movies and how they kind of go along with what we've got going on in our, in our culture right now, but we'll, we'll get to it. I'm sure. Um, but the, before we do, I wanted to mention, this is actually one of the first ideas that you brought up of an episode to do with us. It, it was, it, it's been, it's been in the, the on the back burner for back burner for a while. Um, the, the first one we, the, no, the first idea I pitched at you was the fly. It was the year oh, after okay. the fly that as the, the year after we did the fly series that, uh, I threw this one at you. I'm like, okay, well it's been a year. Do you want to do this again? And I said, how about the thing? And you're like, yeah, let's do the thing. Maybe Steve will want to get involved. And then I sat down and I watched all three of, actually I went out and I bought, um, the thing 2011 
specifically for that. And, I, and, and the thing from another world, I had the, I had the 82 thing because I'm a big collector of John Carpenter films. I want to own all his movies. And I sat down and I watched all three of them. And then, and then I didn't call you back. <laughs> you ghosted on me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know things happen you know this this is this is pre this is this was pre supersonic so i'm like oh well you know it, it's not my podcast so i can't really insist that i get on there you know it's by the grace of ben that i'm on there at all so <laughs> it sounds like i'm uh, this dictator godlike <laughs> no 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 nothing like that i'm just you know it, it, it's one of those and i just posted on facebook tonight that i'm guesting on the podcast that got me into podcasting and uh and and so it, it was one of those things that um very early on strangers and aliens was something i wanted to be in i wanted to interact with because it fascinated me with the idea of having some sort of a podcast where I can talk about things that are of interest to me and maybe interact with people on, on that level. Um, so it, you know, the idea of guest starring on there gets exciting, but I, I have to keep, you know, everything on the level and saying, well, I'm not a stranger or an alien. I'm just a guest. So no, it's no, no. The official, <laughs> official term is your family. I, so strangers and aliens family are people who have appeared on the show as a guest. I'm strangers uh, and aliens adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not canon, um, <laughs> but you are related. Yeah. So, um, so we, together we did the fly and then we did the, uh, the Christian horror trilogy. We did the Christian horror. You, you uh, sent me those movies, um, yep. which I just packed them into a box and I have, a couple boxes we possibly are getting ready to move. And so we're cleaning up a lot. And I have a couple boxes that are DVDs I'm getting rid of. And those three, I was like, no, I'm never watch these again, but I'm hanging on to them because they're, well, here, they're special. So. Here's the thing as a, as a former youth pastor myself, I have found, you know, when you're starting to get those kids that are, or, sorry, we don't use the term kids. When you get those students that are, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you get, when you get those students that are at the age, between the ages of 16 to 18 and they're start they're starting to try to put on their pushing the envelopes phase, um, movies like that are really handy to hang on to and be like, Hey, I, so you're trying to get into horror. Check this out. It's Christian. It's Christian esque and you might enjoy it, you know? And, and I, I used that quite a bit when I was in doing the youth pastor thing. So, you know, they're, they are, t they are handy to have. Uh, then we did Colorado space. Did we do any others? Or was that it? Um, we talked about doing Cloverfield, that one also mm -hmm. did not come to fruition. And that was during the time of uh, Cloverfield Lane, whatever that was. Um, yeah, 10, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, um, we were talking about that. I haven't seen the Cloverfield Paradox yet. I've heard it's awful, though. Uh, I, Evan and I really, really differ on, on our opinions there. And okay. yeah, oddly enough, I do not like that movie. It was very e hard on it. Evan and, liked it and he really liked it. Yeah. Did he watch the first two? Yep. That shocks yep. me. I, uh, because they are so horror esque. I would have figured Evan wouldn't have been so super into it. Uh, he really, really dug the, uh, the Cloverfield paradox, which oh. to me, that was the Cloverfield paradox was that <laughs> we had <laughs> Evan liked it. Yeah. I, you know, I could see us both liking it, but I was just really surprised how much it just did not connect with me at all. 
and he really dug it. So, yeah. Um, but here we are then talking about the thing you had mentioned, uh, John Carpenter and collecting all of his, his movies. Uh, let's, let's start there. Let's start with John Carpenter. What is it about John Carpenter that you, you like, what is it that causes you to say, I want to get this guy's stuff. It's the tone of his movies and the soundtrack. Uh, most, yeah. most people yeah. who are like super into John Carpenter know that he, he typically will do his own soundtrack to his movies. Um, which is typically fairly synth heavy and minimalistic, um, which, uh, he but still, there's, there's musicality to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, it's not like just drone music. It's it, there, there's musicality to it, but it's, it's very understated, um, with the intention of creating a feeling of dread, uh, which, you know, for the majority of his movies, is really what you want to do. Uh, now, contrary to pro- popular belief, uh, John Carpenter doesn't only make horror films. Um, Starman was a John Carpenter film, um, as was Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. So, plus, if it, it just, wasn't for John Carpenter's first movie, Alien would not have been a thing. And that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Dark Star is... I'm assuming you've seen it, obviously. I own um, it. Oh, man. I, I, I try. That, that was another movie I pitched at you. And you're like, I don't know if I can sit through that. <laughs> I, I don't remember saying that because I, I actually I've watched both cuts of the movie um, and and the theatrical cut I've watched twice now. Uh, and I what I appreciate about it is, is Dan O'Bannon, who was the writer of Alien. Um, and then you have. uh I mean, it basically is kind of the plot of Alien with a beach ball instead. Yeah. And yeah. it just, it's something else. That is, that is the truth. It is in my Alien and Alien adjacent collection of movies <laughs> that includes uh, Blade Runner and Soldier. But yeah, but as far as why John Carpenter, I think it's, <sighs> I like his color palette. I like, the tone that hit the, the, just the tone he sets with his movies, it's slightly bleak, but not ov- overtly oppressive. Um, uh, and his lighting, especially he's just got something to his lighting that I can't explain. And I, I, I wish, I wish I had bullying in cinema where I could kind of put it in the words specifically, but uh, for for the most part, it's just, he ha- there's a consistency across his movies of the way he does it that I find pleasing, especially if you've ever seen the movie in the mouth of madness. But I think that has more to do with the fact that I'm a huge HP Lovecraft nerd and that's very Lovecraftian. I, that one I didn't like very much. I remember not liking it and trying to go back and watching it again and trying to figure out why didn't I like this? <laughs> I couldn't figure I I can't remember why I didn't like it. Um, because the, the second time I watched it, I was like, this is actually, this is really compelling and, and interesting. Yeah, you know, if I, if I'm being completely honest, I had the same reaction the first time I watched it. I'm like, eh. and I sat down and I watched it again. I'm like, why was I so bland on this movie? This is fantastic. It has everything I dig about Lovecraft. I, th- I think it's one of those movies. It takes a minute to really digest my wife had the same reaction when she saw napoleon dynamite she hated it the first time she saw it 
But after- interestingly, both uh, Napoleon Dynamite and In the Mouth of Madness are both about just this impending sense of dread uh, <laughs> that just overtakes you. And it's <laughs> you know, my, my kids love Napoleon Dynamite. I saw Napoleon Dynamite once when it came out, not in the theater, but on DVD or VHS mm-hmm. or whatever. And then my kids discovered it. We watched it with them. And they have now watched it, I want to say, five or six times in in the course of the last two years. I mean, it's just they keep going back to it and back to it. And hey, man, it's a very quotable movie. But <laughs> that is true. To bring it back to John Carpenter, though, and even tie it into what we're talking about on this episode, though, um, really what sparked sparked my attention to try to get the thing going again this year was my wife was watching the movie Halloween, which is a John Carpenter film. And it was made before John Carpenter did the thing 1982. Um, and throughout the movie, there's various different points throughout the movie where people are watching an old black and white horror movie on TV. And it's the thing from another world, which is the first movie in the series from 1951. Um, so even back at that time period, John Carpenter was starting to set his focus. Well, I mean, the reason he wanted to do a remake was because he really loved that movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's start there. Let's start with a thing from another world and let's go a little bit earlier than that movie. Um, it's based on a book by John Campbell, John W. Campbell, who we talked about recently in our, um, old time radio episode we talked about him a little bit uh he is a uh science fiction writer and editor he's the editor of uh what was it? i think it was oh, it wasn't it wasn't astonishing it was astonishing and then he became the editor he changed it to analog um and so he's actually one of the gatekeepers of sci-fi in like the 50s and 60s and maybe even into the 70s uh who kind of created the more cerebral sci-fi and and built it into what it was um he worked with uh frank herbert on dune as an editor he worked with robert heinlein and some stuff as an editor he was uh basically he was the guy who gave isaac asimov his big break and then worked for years and years and years with isaac asimov as his editor uh on on like the first round so like before the book was published as a book they're published sometimes as serials and um (laughs) So he he was the gatekeeper on a lot of very famous sci-fi uh, things, but he was the guy who wrote the original novel here. And 1982, the thing is really a, a pretty decent adaptation of of the book. Uh, the thing from another world, less so. <laughs> but, well, I could imagine. I mean, the the only thing that well, the thing from another world, I I like it for what it is, and and a lot of the stuff they do in that in that movie from 1951 still holds up today, which I appreciate. Um, but the storyline does, I, I, if, if 82, the thing sticks closer to the novel, then I, I would, I would say they strayed pretty far from it on the thing from another world. So the thing from another world though, uh, Howard Hawks is the producer but they also say he was the director and that he kind of took over from the guy who was actually directing it. <laughs> it was very much his vision of what was happening. And it's about, uh, so we're in the, the Arctic in a thing from another world, I believe. Uh, yep. and it's about a, 
a team of scientists and soldiers who find a UFO. And they're very excited because they found an actual flying saucer. And out of this flying saucer, they found a survivor. And so far, kind of still thing from 1982. Uh, but the survivor is a plant plant-based life form, an intelligent plant-based life form. And it's still alive, even though it's been buried for 20 million years or whatever it is. A hundred thousand. Is it a hundred thousand? In the, in the book, it actually is uh, like 20 million years. It's, it's 2000, thousand years. Um, Um, And in thing 82, it was a hundred thousand. I want to say that they also said that in a thing from another world, but I'm a little bit fuzzy on that one because I I watched them three days ago. (laughs) So, yeah, and basically it's a Frankensteinish kind of acting person um, who's playing the creature. He's moving around with very stiff arms, stiff legs. Um, The big deal is he, he produces spores that feed on human blood. And so he could create an army that would destroy the world if he were to escape. So they have to make sure he's not going to escape. So funny story about that. When they, every time I see this movie and they start talking about that, I'm reminded, uh, back in the nineties, there was a, uh, Christian horror punk band called the deadlines. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or if you remember them. Um, they were basically like a, a Christian response to the band, the misfits, um, anyway, uh, they, on their album, they had a song called, Ve- uh, Vegicide <laughs> where it's all, he, it, he's having what he calls a vegan nightmare where, uh, all the vegetables come to life and start, uh, eating people. And so every time I see that, every time I see this movie, that's the first thing that comes to mind is that song. And it, it's, I, I know I'm just on a tangent at this point, but that's my biggest correlation with this movie is that song by that little known band that was on tooth and nail for like two years. Well, definitely. I I do appreciate that. They call it out in the movie. Uh, I believe it's Scotty, the the reporter who says something like, what are we, what are we afraid of the carrot? You know, like it's, yeah, it's a walking carrot, you know? Um, But he's very deadly and very murdery and regrows his arms and stuff very quickly. Uh, and the other thing throughout the whole movie, it is a moralizing sci-fi picture. I mean, it's not, it's not just uh, a B movie. They, they try and get the moral, uh, they talk a lot about science versus, um, well, everything basically. <laughs> yeah. I wrote down the quote here. Uh, knowledge is more important than life. That's one of the things that the scientist guy says. Um, and, and then he talks about um, the only importance there is, is to study this thing. And so they actually do have their one guy who's there against them. If they're trying to kill the creature, you have this guy who's trying to um, make sure they don't. And it does create a really tense scene uh, at the very end when they're going to kill the thing. And we're going to get to spoilers, I guess, with this one. But this one's pretty old. I have and a feeling we're getting to spoilers with all of them. At some we're going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're about to kill it with electricity and all of a sudden the power cuts out and I, I've seen this movie before, but when I was rewatching it for this, I had forgotten that happens. 
And as it, as the monster's approaching, all of a sudden the power cuts out, and he's like, "Wait, what?" And um, and it was one of them who did it. You know, it's the scientist who's going to try and preserve this thing um, because knowledge is more important than yeah. life. That head scientist, man. By the time we got to the end of the movie, I was ready for that monster to eat that scientist. He was dr- <laughs> he was driving me up the wall. It's just like everything you say is stupid. It really was. You know, I mean, it's. It's the kind of thing where um, it's like anti-virtue signaling, right? You know, like he's, we're just gonna make sure everyone knows this guy is not a good person, right? Because... Well, I mean, I mean, he 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 he's a part of the No Lives Matter campaign. <laughs> Seriously, it's and on, on the flip side of that, that was kind of and, and still is maybe somewhat uh, a philosophical viewpoint of you know knowledge for future generations is more important than our life in our generation, you know, and it's all about the human race. And, but especially back then, I know C.S. Lewis wrote some letters uh, back and forth with Arthur C. Clarke and some other people, um, but specifically with Arthur C. Clarke, where they're talking about like scientific expansion and stuff like that and how some people, and he, he does this in his science fiction books then too, where he has these characters who knowledge is more important uh, my life is more important than your life because I'm bringing knowledge to the human race that's going to help elevate the human race uh, and you're not uh, and, and you're nothing. And it's just that that is a philosophical approach to life. That's I won't say legitimate, but it is realistic to have that guy go that extreme. Um, but, yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> no. Now there were a couple. Uh, there was a couple undercurrents, a couple theme undercurrents that they didn't outright say in this movie. That I, I, I'm curious as to if you picked up on. Yeah, sure. Did, did you pick up on the whole red scare element that yes. was that was yeah. throughout this movie? Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. And again, for, that's typical of the time. Uh, for for those of you who were uh, born after 1995, uh, the Red Scare was uh, during the uh, Cold War when we were constantly afraid that the Russians were going to spy on us and get horrific information and or attack us. Um, so that's a thing. Also, um, because this movie takes place in Alaska, one thing I did find interesting, and I looked it up just to double check, and it is true, this movie was filmed before Alaska was a state. So the, technically, really? it was st- yes, it was still a territory. Huh. Uh, this movie was filmed in 1951. Alaska became a, uh, became a state in 1959. I didn't even think about that. That's really cool. Huh. So that, they that, talk that, about that, the Canadians and, and the mm-hmm, Russians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's that's a thing, too, that I, I found to be a, a bit fascinating. Um, hey, going back to your your Red Scare thing, though, uh, as I was watching it this time around, I was thinking this movie and Invasion of the Body Snatchers would make a, a good double feature mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. just because of that. But then that got me thinking the thing 1982. Oh, you and, and you were writing the late same... 70s Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You would and me also were writing make... that same wavelength. I had the same yeah. thought when I was watching that. In fact, that's in my notes later on. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that because I, I have some definite thoughts on that. But how many movies can you say that where this movie and that movie and the remake and the, the other movies remake also would make a good a good double feature yeah. and not for the same reasons. Oh, for sure. Necessarily. Yeah. So, yeah, that was. The the Red Scare thing 
though there was a lot of stuff, especially on the down low that Hollywood was doing because they couldn't be overt about it because of the political response. Um, they were just, hey, we're going to make these movies about how scary it is to, to be in a country where someone could be a communist in your well, very midst. I, I'm wondering if this was. I wonder if they were doing the, uh, the MacArthur trials during this time period, too. I am not sure on the timeline of that, so I don't know. I have, I happen to have a uh, member of the, uh, sci- the sci-fi Christian podcast here with me, and I will address them to see if they, if they happen to know. Are you uh, text messaging Wikipedia? Uh, something like that. Uh, McCarthyism. Oh, no, I don't need the parallel between the McCarthy trials and uh, the crucible. Durf. Uh, no, uh, the McCarthy trials were in 1954, but it was ramping up into it. So, yeah, you can definitely see how that uh, st- the climate, the political climate at the time was uh, was kind of ramping up into that era of American history. If you take this as a uh, pop culture cross section. Yeah. Now, if you take it as just a B movie monster movie, uh, I'm not super impressed. Um, the monster did not really impress me. Uh, no, he was just, super Frankenstein. I mean, let, let, yeah. let's face it. This movie was a little bit of a Frankenstein knockoff. It was, it was Frank. It was plan Frankenstein from outer space. Would have been nice to get a little bit more of a plant based look to the creature uh as they're talking about like this is what it is and uh that that whole plant-based element is brand new for this movie they came up with it when they were writing this movie um avoiding what john campbell had in, in his original original book uh and a lot of people were really disappointed in that um i just recently li- listened to the biography of john campbell uh, and and got into his work with Astounding and got into bi- a biography also of, of Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, and, uh, oh, Dianetics guy, L. Ron Hubbard, um, Scientology. You know him better from Scientology than Dianetics. But uh, I know him from out, Battlefield Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that. And Tom Cruise. Uh, yep. Uh, without him, we would not have Tom Cruise right now. So, or at least we would not have Tom Cruise as we have him right now. Right. But um, but anyway, uh, back to John Campbell though. The movie itself, it was exciting to see on the screen. You know, big budget sci-fi kind of thing. But um, it took a lot of liberties, and and so the a lot of response from the science fiction fandom was. Not very good response from just regular people. It was they they liked it. They were uh, kind of scared by the monster, I guess, a little bit. And it wasn't it wasn't a failure as far as like actual general box office. But as far as fandom went, it wasn't a it wasn't embraced. Let's put it that way. I, I can understand that. I mean, it it it's it's not a mind blowing movie. It didn't really change 
anything, but there the, the special effects that they use in this movie really hold up. And I think certain things they did were before their time. Like this is 1951 and they, they do a burn suit effect in this movie. Oh my goodness. That whole sequence. And I, I, when I was watching that, I'm like, are they seriously doing a burn suit in this movie? I didn't know they could do that back in 51. Yeah. I want to say that that was not all one shot, one cut, like, mm-hmm. cause that goes on for a long, long time. Right. And then just as you think, Oh, they're, they're done. No, they just, they just lit him up again. And, yep. And even more, he's just, he's burning brighter. Uh, and he goes through that window. It, it's a great sequence. Mm-hmm. And they do a super good job of making this movie feel cold as well. Um, being as they are in Alaska. Now, Something else I'm wondering if you picked up on as well, the Geiger counters they used in this movie. Did that make, was that reminiscent of anything to you? Not, uh, no, tell me the sonar guns in alien. Oh yeah. Every time I was watching that, cause they were using, yeah. they were just swinging it back and forth. And whenever it would start making the noise faster, it was just like, Oh, he's over. He's, he's this direction. And it's just like I was having flashbacks to the scenes in aliens where they're in the airlocks or the um, air air ducts, you know, especially that scene with Chris Christopherson. And he's in there and he's just, it's right on you. And he's like, I can't see him. Yeah. Yeah. I and I almost wonder if if uh, that's where uh, uh, Ridley Scott had got the idea for the those uh, sonar guns for from it was from this movie. It could be. I mean, it. Everything builds on everything else, right? And yeah. so, yeah, it, it, it very well could be. I I don't know. I don't know. But I I liked that element as well because they were able to build suspense with that. Um, I love the scene where they're just like, <laughs> he's coming closer. Uh, it's it's on the move, and and the the captain guy just stands up, goes in the other room. Just matter of fact, all right, everyone. Um, let's move. It's come closer and he just takes control. Um, it's very much a man's man. Uh, he, he, he cuts a captain Kirk figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I kind of like that about him. Um, one interesting, I think was, this is definitely a movie of its time. Um, the misogyny is not <laughs> so true. <laughs> they, so true. They All do the not even to... hide it. Uh, and they actually, kind of hang a lampshade on it like it's almost like they know uh as, as some of the characters are talking and the uh, and other characters are like you're that, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable that you're talking like that right now <laughs> <laughs> here here's here's the funny bit though I, I i can take this one step further with the misogyny the only person who was not white in this movie was relegated to be in the kitchen yeah yeah so um, there there's some subtle racism in there as well Absolutely. Um, again, movie of its time and, um, yeah, very much. (laughs) Some movies you just look at and you say that is a 1951 or 52 movie. Um, and there's just no denying it. Like it's not timeless. This movie is not timeless at all. Well, here's, here's the thing though. Culture, cultural, cultural normatives are ever changing. Um, so what I will say is that, you know, you can't look at a 19. It's the same reason why I got a little bit weird when everybody was getting all 
saying that baby it's cold outside is a was an offensive song you can't judge a, a product of 1951 by two, tw- 2020 standards because the cultural normatives sh- have shifted so much since then that th- you can't hold you can't hold something from the past to the standards that we have now it, it, any more than we can you know it, just get mad that it's in black and white. It's just, it, it, it's a different culture back then. It, I, I would say you can judge it, um, but you have to be, there has to be a nuanced judgment to it, you know, and this is with anything in culture and, and anything in, in shifting cultures, like to look at going to, you know, the Bible and people saying, Oh, it's so gendered and it's so misogynistic. And you're like, well, no, if you look at it, uh, it's actually really progressive for women. You know, oh, it this is. is. This is a progressive religion that embraces women in a way that um, does not relegate them to uh, sexual slavery or you know different things like that that other religions of the time were. Right. And it actually invites women to the table, you know, and, and in a way that has had never happened before, um, because you you have to look at the nuance of what they have there. Uh, and where, honestly, some things that are maybe um, progressive uh, for its time are, are still able to, you know, years later, you're able to look back and say, well, that's that's really misogynistic. You know, not, not that this movie was progressive. I mean, this movie, um, I will say this, though, the the woman uh, character, there were two women characters and yep. they're both professionals. They mm-hmm. both existed in the setting to do a job that they were good at. Um, the one was was the doctor, and then and you have the love interest who held her own with uh, with the captain, Ugh. and you know they had their banter back and forth, and they are really trying really hard to have these these are two people who are on the same level playing back and forth, and, and really who's in power in that relationship? They're, neither of them, you know. I am so sorry, but that love story in that movie felt so crowbarred into the. Oh, movie. it's horrible. Don't get me wrong. It's I, I say they were trying really hard to do that. You can see what they were trying to do. It's not good. No. <laughs> the worst part of the movie for me is. Absolutely. I, I just wish they had taken that whole bit out because it's not funny. And the the stuff they're joking about with each other is is not funny. Um, <laughs> the, the one part where he's she's like, let's get a drink. He's like, well. You don't have to tie me up, you know, and then right. cut to him with his Being hands tied, tied up. It's bad. I mean, but this, it, again, it's a product of that era that they had to shoehorn that in. Like um, Steve and I have been playing around with starting our own podcast called John and Steve do stuff. We're just kind of looking for a home for it right now, but we have a couple episodes recorded for it already. Uh, episode one is uh, we watch plan nine from outer space. No, not plan nine from outer space. That was episode two. It was uh, uh, the, the forbidden planet. Mm, yeah, and yeah. And Leslie Nielsen, which is so weird singing with hair color, uh, but Leslie Nielsen uh, and and the love interest in that, again, super shoehorned in, could have done without it. So I think I just think I think that they felt the need that they needed to put some like the literal something in there for everybody sort of thing, because people weren't going to the movies all the time back in the 50s like we are now or were rather. Um 
so I, I, I think that they were trying to give everybody the most bang for their buck. So if you like romance, we got romance, we've got thrills and we've got action. And uh, uh, I'll just say if, if that was a, someone I was interested in, um, and that was her idea of romance, uh, we, it would not have worked. <laughs> I, I, it is nothing like what I think of when I think of romance. That, um, I, I I will say, though, that this movie and watching it, 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 for the most part, it still holds up. I would really like to see a remake of this particular movie set in that same exact time period. I think that would be super interesting to see. Like, let's let's do let's do a sci fi. Let's do a sci fi invasion movie set back in Red Scare U.S. pre Alaska statehood. We might be getting that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, there was a, an expanded version of Who Goes There, which is the John Campbell book. Right. Um, called Frozen something or other that has been recently discovered. I just became aware of it as I was looking up things about this um, topic for this podcast. Blumhouse has optioned the rights to that book, and they have said that the movie that they intend to create would be a remake of thing from another world that would incorporate elements from the original book and the, the expanded edition of the book. I want so, to go to there. Yeah. I, I don't know if the intention would be period piece, um, it, which might mean going back to 1938 even. Hey, I'm game that that still would be super cool. I, 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 you know, doing aliens and cowboys like they did um, about 10 years ago, super not into that idea that's a little bit too far back but you know the whole uh red scare era um 1930s through 1950s yeah man let me see that yeah so the book is set in the present day 1938 uh it's also set in antarctica uh, antarctica man i can never say that it's also set in antarctica and like like the movie we're about to talk about but yeah so i guess let's talk about the the next movie then Let's do that. To, uh, <laughs> all right. We're moving to the next movie, though, which is not what you're thinking of. This is the one that this is. I said I was going to throw two movies at you. Oh, yeah. So here's the first one I'm throwing at you. Um, have for, you ever seen gentle listeners at home? I'm just going to preface this by saying Ben told me he was going to throw movies at me. He did not tell me what they are. So this is all cold reaction right now. Yeah, yeah. So there was a movie starring Christopher Lee, okay, Peter Cushing, yes, Cushing, and Telly Savalas. <laughs> now, now you just threw me for a loop. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a movie that very much feels like a uh, Hammer horror movie. It's not Hammer Studios, but that's the reason why they got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. It's called Horror Express, and you, I've heard of it, and I've been told that it is adjacent to the thing, mm-hmm. but it basically it's the thing on a train is it what is, I've told. I've, I've not seen it myself. I, in fact, I've only heard about it recently when I posted online, uh, that, uh, th- that me and my wife were watching the thing movies. And, uh, I think it was, uh, the dapper man who, uh, messaged me and said, uh, that this was the next one I should watch. Cause it's the thing on a train. It is the thing on a train. It, 
basically imagine okay they found the thing right mm-hmm. uh and now they have put it on a train because they're transporting it where it's going to go um which none of the other movies get that far you know but this is like the extension of that um and it does uh you you get into the identity horror of who's mm-hmm. who what's what um because it possesses people and Ooh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds like it's what would be up my alley. I'm super. I might have to actually find this and watch it, maybe even buy it, because I I love Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. I in fact I just recently watched House of the Long Shadows, which has them, plus John Carradine and uh, uh, Vincent Price. Oh man, <laughs> that's that's a packed movie. It's a it's an awesome movie. If you get a chance to watch it, I highly recommend it. It's like a cross between a slasher and a whodunit. So I do not highly recommend Horror Express, but I do recommend it. Like there, there's recommendation to it from me. But. Well, when the Dapper Man had uh, recommended it to me, I f- got it confused with Terror Train, which was a Jamie Lee Curtis horror film from the 1970s. So no. No, it's not that one. No, this is this is 1970s. It's 1972, I believe. Right. Um, around in there. So and it takes place. This is a period piece that goes back to the early early 1900s um but yeah that's that's the next one is if we're looking at like things that are actually an adaptation of this book now we move to 1982 okay that is the main event that is the thing directed by john john carpenter the man the man by the way every time we say here's the thing um i I can't help but snicker just a little bit because I think we both have said it a couple times. Yeah, but you know, it, it, it it's a uh, it's a colloquialism. I think is the word I'm trying to think of. That yes, that if, we, if it's not, it does work in what we're saying. So right. Yep. Uh, so yeah, the the thing, John Carpenter, 1982 box office bomb, uh, because of True the story. other Alien movie that came out just a couple weeks earlier. <laughs> E.T. phone home. Well, it was also critically panned because of how gory it was. Um, A lot of people, a lot, a lot of the critics just panned it as a, as John Carpenter, just throwing together a giant splatter fest with no substance, which I, I personally think um, is missing the forest for the trees. In my opinion, if you can look past the gore, it's actually a really deep concept and a, a real, a, a real essay in how to write something that feels paranoid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this whole movie is again, it, there's looming dread behind all this stuff that's happening and the looming dread that we are feeling right now, even so this week I had a coworker um, test positive for, for COVID and She's fine. She's doing better. Um, but suddenly, well, who has it? Do I have it? Do I have it now? You know, and it just becomes this um, where you're looking suspiciously at everyone and the people who are the thing don't even necessarily know they're the thing. And, and that's where this whole movie and the sequel uh, gets into the, the whole testing of blood and the whole like, uh, it's not me. And when when they dis- determine could be you it doesn't matter if it's you or not it could be and so it's just gonna it, yeah and this 
the fact it's 1982, it doesn't matter. It's 1982. It's set in 1982. This is a timeless movie. Yes. This is a movie for all times. And I won't say for all people because it is super gory. So gory. And the it's practical. Yes. They built yeah, I, and filmed. And these things were in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I have I have words about that for the 2011 movie. But go ahead. Continue. Yeah, we we have to have words about 2011 movie because there that that feeds into something else I wanted to talk about. But that's the 2011 movie. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just going back to what I was saying, this is a timeless movie and it's timeless because of themes and it's timeless because of look and it's timeless because um, it just it doesn't feel like a movie filmed in 1982. It just feels like a movie about 1982. Yes. People uh, about people in 1982. And so many movies drew on this and so many filmmakers were inspired by this. And, um, yeah, I could go on and on, but I, I need to let you go on and on a little bit. I mean, you are the, the guest here. Oh, I mean, if, if, if you've got content, man, let it out because, uh, <laughs> you know, being, being a fellow podcaster, I know when you're, when you're on a roll, you want to keep that going. Uh, but I will say, I will say, uh, sitting down because I watched all three of these with my wife because we're ramping up for Halloween. And so these are the types of movies we watch throughout the month of October. Um, now the best way to watch this movie is cold for the first time, walking into it with no idea of what you're walking into and sitting down and watching it. That's the best way to watch this movie. Now, if you've already seen this movie, the next best way to watch this movie, as I've learned, is to watch it with someone who either hasn't seen it before or doesn't remember anything about it. <laughs> that is a fantastic experience because that person watching them go through all the phases of the movie, that is almost more in, more entertaining than the movie itself. I can see that. I mean, <laughs> I can't see it because it's not going to happen for me. Um I can't imagine sitting down with Evan. This movie. <laughs> no, no, I, I, no, he wouldn't. I, I can't, no. I can't see Evan doing this movie. Steve, Steve's actually, when I, when I had a, a long time ago, when I had mentioned to Steve that I was thinking about pitching this to you again, Steve was like, Oh, I'd be interested in doing that. So I know Steve would watch he these movies. He doesn't know we're doing this right now. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just was like, Oh, Hey, let's, Oh, let's do it tonight. Awesome. This week. And then you're like, yesterday so it's not tonight is it tomorrow yeah yeah let's do it yeah sure and tomorrow well yeah I, in my defense i've been pretty scatterbrained lately no, I mean, it, there's a lot cool. going on you know it's, it's cool i've got podcasts with steve for days so i mean you know I, um <clears throat> not a big deal evan's the only person i haven't appeared in the same podcast with at this point um now, one thing about this movie that t that relates back to another episode we did is that this this movie is a huge exercise in gory body horror. So to take it back to the Jeff Goldblum, the fly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for people who are listening, who haven't seen this movie, who are thinking about watching it because it's, we're talking about it on here. I will just want to have that caveat. This, this movie is super intense on the gory body horror. Um, so use discretion when you're watching it. I don't want to violate anybody's sensibilities. Just throwing it out there. No, it, it absolutely is one that even as I know I'm going to talk about it in glowing terms because of some of the things that it is. Um, but 
especially watching it the first time, it, it, it doesn't it came close to being stomach turning. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just or stomach churning, turning, whatever. My wife had to look away. Turning, maybe. Yeah, but. my wife had to look away from the screen a couple times watching it. Uh, and another thing too, uh, this is something I do know is that John Carpenter specifically shot the title card for this movie with the intention, like he walked into it saying, "I want to do the title card exactly the same way they did it in the thing from Another World," which is the whole burn away into the thing and on the screen. Is. But is it, I know that that's probably what went behind it. The question I have is, I'm watching that this time. I'm like, wait a minute. Is it melting? It is. Um, so, so the words are melting. I mean, because that's a big part of Thing from Another World and the thing mm-hmm. is your creature is melting. Well, and... here, here, here's how they did it. And this is something that I learned uh, from listening to another podcast that doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was a podcast out of Canada called uh, Horror, etc. And I'm, I'm internet friends with one of the guys on there named Anthony DP Mann, who is a uh, independent movie maker now. Uh, but what they had said was what they what John Carpenter did was he took a black plastic bag, like they they took they took they made a black they made a black surface and surface and cut the thing into the surface, and they put a black pa- plastic bag over the back of that surface, and then they had a light shining behind that black plastic bag. And then when they, what they did was they lit that plastic bag on fire. So it burns in there and then the light shining through where it melts. So if you look really hard, you can actually see the plastic melting and dripping off of. Right. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous effect. And, Mm -hmm. and that's what they did with the other movie too. Like that was the effect there. And when I was watching this time for this, this podcast, I was, wait a minute, it's melting. And that's a big part of of these movies is you have something in the cold and then it melts and comes out of it. And it's kind of this death to birth yes. kind of a thing for the creature. And which yeah, I mean, it, when you're looking at a horror movie, a lot of times horror is about death and dying or the fear of, of being killed. But these are definitely creatures who were left for dead. And no one ever thought they could be alive um, because they're so old. Uh, but even then, they're being really careful <laughs> with the creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, it's even more explicit how careful they're being because they're afraid that there might be a uh, virus or v- bacteria that has survived. Like the creature itself can't possibly have survived because right. it's, it's a higher life form. But lower life forms can be frozen and can be revived. And they're afraid of that. And um, and there's a really interesting back and forth about that where they're saying, well, the virus that would come from that creature would not be able to survive us because we have changed beyond what that virus was meant for. And it wouldn't be able to survive in us. And yeah, there's some interesting stuff in, in that. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it really is about something coming from death to life. Um, watching it this time, I was thinking, you know, especially in the thing from another world, like that creature, they don't spend any time trying to find out motivations, except for the scientist who at one point tries to reason with the creature, can't communicate at all. Um, that creature could be the protagonist of its own story. Like, 
more so even than like Michael Myers, you know, from mm-hmm. from Halloween uh, or the Xenomorph, you know, where it's just a killing machine or whatever. And these creatures are on a planet. They got out of their their ship and froze and then were brought back to life by people who wanted to kill it. You know, because it's mm-hmm. it's it's just trying to survive, man. Anyway. Now, here's the thought, and I know I'm I'm taking a step back in the podcast here, but I just, I just had a I, – I, I was sitting here trying to think. In the thing 1951, there's not a body count. Nobody dies. <laughs> Even the scientist. <laughs> I was positive the scientist was dead. And then at the very end, they're, like, giving the report, and, like, and he says – yeah, and the the scientist he he uh, he's recovering from wounds sustained in our battle with the creature. So it's just like if anything, if you really start to think about it, humanity was the bad guy in that movie. Mm-hmm. You know this the, this thing's waking up for millions of years. There's these strange creatures that are around him that are, you know, and he's just you trying what I'm to saying. Yeah. I, so yeah, I he, I, I, I he think killed the dog. Well, yeah, he doesn't know what it is. And the dog, I, and when he went out there, the dogs attacked him first. So I'm just saying self-defense. And he survives on blood. Well, homeboy's got to eat, you know, I ain't, well, ain't nobody going to get mad at me for eating, a, killing a cow to eat it. You know, I, I mean, want, he's I, not going to be a vegetarian, right? He is a vegetable. So right. I mean, technically he, that would be technically that would be cannibalism and cannibalism's wrong. Exactly. Exactly. No, the case can definitely be made for the creature, especially in that one, being mm-hmm. being the protagonist and and wrongfully attacked. Like it could be a horror movie from either side of of the of the camera. Yeah. On that. Less so with the thing from 1982. Oh gosh, no, no, that's that, so gross. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And when it, it was funny because when I when I put this movie on, uh, my wife has seen this movie, but she had forgotten everything about it. She took massive issue with them shooting at the dog at the beginning of the movie from the helicopter. Oh, the entire, the entire time. She's like, why is they shooting at the dog? That's terrible. Well, it is. That's the, that's the whole point. I I think that that is actually the reaction that they want you to have. Right. But I'm, it it was just funny. I'm, I'm sitting there kind of chuckling to myself and like, just wait, (laughs) you, you know, everything they want you to know at this point. So just, just go for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, Let's start there. This is a really well-crafted movie from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. They change. They they do take a couple liberties from the book. Primarily, the liberties that they're taking are to change it to 1982, and then also to adjust the pacing and the plot so that it is more of a of a mystery to the characters as well as as you. The book opens up with uh, McCready giving a monologue about basically telling the story. Here's right. how we found it. Here's what happened then. Here's what happened then. Here's what happened then. And they're all just in a meeting um, around the thing. Uh, also in the book, they make it very clear. This thing's intention is to take over the world. It's uh, there's kind of this psychic connection. And, and it's very clearly an, an evil entity ah. that that has come. So I think that might be why so, the movies are able to kind of gloss over that a little bit, um, because that is. A big part of the book. Um, so anyway, the. Yeah, I, I don't know where we want to start. I mean, we talked about the practical effects, but is there more to go with that? Because, I mean, you just have all these different creatures 
that's the other cool thing in in alien you have the different stages of life for the creature in this you just have these different um just explosions of creature coming oh, yeah. out, of, out of the different characters and they're all different every single one of them is is different it's not just a variation on one creature it's uh just i, I don't even know how to describe it um yeah i mean well i i know how to describe it um anybody if if anybody after our last movie episode that we've done together sat down and watched the color out of space it's like that <laughs> yes um yeah. because because that scene that scene in the color out of space the one with the lightning or the one with the the llamas in the back of the oh, truck is it llamas? They're alpa- alpacas, aren't they? Yeah, same thing. Uh, but in the back of the truck, you look at that and then think about the dogs in the kennel. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh? No, they were very much drawing on the thing. And and obviously there are other referencing uh, of movies as well, as well as trying to do their own thing with the with the colors and with the, the horror there. Well, but, yeah, but I, I'm <clears> just I'm just saying I, I, I when we got to the kennel scene, I'm like, oh, this is the thing out. of This is the color out of space right here. Uh, that's, what, that's what's funny the, is when when we got to the alpacas in in that one, you said, oh, this is the thing. This is yeah, the thing right here. Did I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you you were on the same wavelength as yourself. Well, Absolutely. It, yeah. it, we must think alike then. <laughs> I think you do. I, I really do. Um, yeah. So that that's that's a thing. Um, also, some something else I drew from this too. When they get to the black and white footage of the Norwegian camp, when they pull it out of the ice, did you see an homage to the original movie as well? Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, I mean, when they were, oh, what are they, whatever they call the the uh, the firebomb thing that they were doing, uh, the thermite. Um, yeah, yeah, it was very much like wow. Is or, that the footage? No, it's not, but it's very much meant to. I, I was looking for that too, but, uh, and then they, they also had them standing in a circle around the spacecraft with their arms out like they did in the 51. So <laughs> hey, this is how we can figure out that it's a circle by standing in a circle that we have to have seen in order to stand here. Right. But, but it is a visual. I'll grant you that it's a visual above the ice. Film is a visual medium. Okay. And there is a tragedy. There's an underlying tragedy that wasn't at the time of the at the time of the filming of this is that there is a very phenomenal actor who, when people see him nowadays, he will not will not be remembered for his work. He'll only be remembered. He'll only be remembered for diabetes. Yeah, Uh, he's actually in my book remembered for two other things, though. And one is he was in some some hour long family drama that was on Sunday night. I can't remember the name of it, but he was in it. Yeah. I was, I was, I was about that show in the eighties, man. I watched it every, every week we watched it. Um, Mm -hmm. and the second Ewok movie. (laughs) Oh, I only have vague. I only have vague, vague memories of uh, like Disney channel in the eighties memories of that, of those movies. Yep. Yep. That was, uh, he was in the second one. He had the spaceship that Sindel, Sindel, is that her name? Sindel, something like that. That she was able to uh, leave the planet with him. 
I, I, I will say, though, for anybody out there who's not familiar with, with this movie or Wilford Brimley's work, watch this movie because Wilford Brimley, in my opinion, is a tour de force in this movie. I mean, his part isn't exceptionally large, but he does his part well, in my opinion. In this movie. The, the scene where he goes out of control. Yes. And and I, I don't even know if you should say out of control. I mean, he was being very deliberate, like he was kind of freaking out, but he had good reason to freak out. He was looking out. for his mustache. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, his, his whole scene, though, where he gets to, you know, some actors metaphorically chew up the scenery. Mm-hmm. In his scene, he gets to literally chew up the scenery. He gets an axe and is able to start chopping down the scenery. And I, I, he takes that gun and they're like, dude, okay, slow down. It's okay. Um, you know, no one wants to hurt anyone. And then he shoots right away and fires all his bullets, then throws the gun. No one's even in the door. Uh, and it's not a mistake. Like the intention is he's throwing the gun at an empty door because everyone's hiding right then. Um, which signals to them that he doesn't have the gun anymore. They can come up with the table and, uh, great scene again, but um, but he's great in it. He's just he's wonderful in that. Yeah. And of course, the classic scene when they lock him in the tool shed and then they open the little visual latch on the door to talk to him and he's sitting there eating out of a can and there's just a noose hanging from the ceiling like it's no big deal. <laughs> I mean, maybe the- maybe it's just me and my gallows humor, but I thought that was hilarious the first time I saw that. Yeah, and that's where this movie is a very human movie too. Even though, I mean, at the time, I guess he wasn't human, was he? But it's hard to say because that's true. That's true. Because he's still talking. I'm hearing weird things out here, you know? So just let me come in. I'm all right now. So you just, you get the impression though, that when the thing is, has taken the place of someone, it has that person's memory and it i think it's sometimes it doesn't even know it actually is what it is until something triggers it to realize what it is could be and then it's, it's very good at, at hiding itself and it it's hard to say this movie is super well written to the point where you don't know like there is no possible way to know who the thing is until it reveals himself which is why the ambiguous ending works so well. Oh, my wife hated that ending. Well, but <laughs> again, I, I think that we're not supposed to like that ending. It's it's it works well because it's so ambiguous. But we are we're trained, you know, to have everything all wrapped up. But that's not what this movie is. This whole movie is all about not knowing. And and so you have two people who are talking to each other at the end of this movie. Neither one of them really knows what's going on and who's who and what's what. And we are in the same boat as those characters. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, I typically don't go for that type of ending, like the end of the mist, the uh, that movie that came out. I want to say it was in 2011 uh, as well. I, oh, that. Uh, that that's a classic case of a movie that had a great hour and 58 minutes that was completely destroyed by the last two minutes of the movie. I wanted to break my TV after I saw that movie, just with how it ended. That and it's just, it rendered, it rendered the whole movie pointless. It was so frustrating. That's not what the book does. 
So that's, I, that is not Stephen King's ending to the book. I wouldn't know. I, I, uh, it, There's it, a it little just, bit of hope in the book. Uh, it's a just, little bit. But this it, one just takes all the hope and, sh- and literally shoots it in the head. <laughs> <laughs> it, oh. <laughs> oh. You're starting to make John jokes. <laughs> I, I'm the one who's supposed to have the tasteless humor between the two of us. You're supposed to be the moral, the moral shining guy, and I'm supposed to be the edgy horror lord. I'm, I'm just calling him as I sees him. I mean, this. <laughs> yeah, that that movie. You want to talk about a movie that ratchets up the tension and has the the isolation and and then you know just who's who, what's what, what's going on. Um, the, the novella I had read years before, um, I remember liking and went and saw the movie and I was just, this is, I don't remember the book. I just remember the book ending kind of with a almost happy ending, almost positive ending. Almost. You don't know. I just, yeah, I hate that movie. And my, my mom's husband likes to throw it in my face every chance he gets just to get me riled up. But, ugh. <laughs> Um, but getting back so anyway, to this ending, yes, it, it's ambiguous and it makes you wonder who's who, what, what, what's going on. I don't know. Uh, and then it ends. And I think that is absolutely the right ending. Absolutely. And that could get ruined by a sequel mm. because a sequel would either have to ignore that ending which is absolutely fine you know if you did a sequel that was set a couple years later or something like that so you don't have to explain the ending but if you set a sequel the next week you have to explain the ending i can tell you how you can do a sequel and keep and keep the same ending how's that ever seen the predator 2 yeah same concept just have another one land somewhere else in the world yeah yeah or or everything's just covered up in ice you know over the years and it's found in 2020 and, something like that and uh and they find those two guys frozen there i, I can <laughs> see know? that and but even still uh, they're gonna have to answer the question if they well find yeah you're guys. right if they found the two guys and did anything with them other than leave them there they would have to answer the question uh now to bring it back to something I said I was going to bring up when we were talking about uh, the thing 82 and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I've seen yeah. this movie. Yeah. I have seen the thing 82 many, many times. And it was only this year that I realized this is the exact same plot as the Donald Sutherland Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's the, it's the exact same plot. It's just set in Antarctica and with a little bit more claustrophobia and a whole lot more body horror. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, you could almost look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers as the natural progression. Mm-hmm. Like, if the thing made it back to civilization, you could see a, a movie play out like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Actually, I can take it one step further. I can say that the Donald Sutherland invasion of the body snatchers is the sequel to the 1951 thing from another world. Yeah. Because everybody comes from a pod. And if you take a look at those pods that they have, that they start growing in the thing from another world, 
looks pretty similar. Yeah, you're, and that might have been what triggered me to think about them as a double feature. I mean, there's that red scare kind of thing going on, but mm-hmm. the the original also had the the plant based pod thing going on. I mean, the pod so, people is in pop culture parlance. Yeah, because of of that movie. So I'm just saying. Yeah, they 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 do more than just hold hands. <laughs> yeah, they're they're dancing together. Oh yeah, they're dancing around each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we're missing a really important piece to talk about for the thing. And that is, is Kurt Russell. That guy's magic. I have yet to see a movie with him in it that I, that he's not, he doesn't just absolutely eat up his part. He's not necessarily the greatest actor. No, but he is a wonderful presence. He is, he, he is like Jared Harris. Um, in that, he doesn't necessarily make bad movies good, but whatever movie he is in, he makes it better because he's in it. He makes good movies better. Well, he makes all movies better. He just doesn't necessarily make bad movies good. Like I've seen, I've seen, I've seen Jared Harris in some pretty terrible movies. Um, and I'm I'm not sure who Jared Harris is. Um, Jared Harris. I'm trying to think of a movie that you would have seen him in. Um, have you, did you see the second Sherlock Holmes movie? A game yes, of shadows, but I don't remember anything about it. Uh, well, do you remember Moriarty? No. Oh, I was about to say he played Moriarty in the second Sherlock Holmes movie. Um, I'm trying to think of a mo- See, your, your movie circles and my movie circles roll, roll in different directions for the most part. <laughs> You don't, you don't watch, you don't watch as much horror as me. He's, he's in another, he's in a uh, John Carpenter movie called the ward, but I don't think you've seen that. The ward. Yeah. I don't know if I have. It, that's, I've that's seen what, most of John Carpenter's movies. Uh, the ward came out probably about five years ago. Um, oh, I wouldn't have seen that then. Mm-mm. Uh, it, uh, it's very reminiscent of the, uh, movie, um, Oh, gosh, what was that John Malkovich movie where him, Ray Being Liotta, John not John Malkovich, I'm sorry, John Cusack, oh. him, him and Ray Liotta and a bunch of other people get trapped in a flash flood at a motel in the middle of the Las Vegas desert. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember what it was. It's it's very similar to that type of a movie. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, Kurt Russell yeah back back to the actual topic at hand yeah yeah he's he's just great in this and he brings what's what what i like about him is that he's not the goody goody good guy you know like you first meet him he loses chest to a computer and breaks it like it's that's Um, that's his character yeah, and I, I had a thought about that, too, when we were watching this movie, because this entire movie, uh, especially when the paranor- paranoia really starts ramping up, it feels like a game of mental strategy. And I, I was kind of mm-hmm. thinking to myself, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, I wonder if the chess game at the beginning of this was intended as uh, foreshadowing for oh, the absolutely. rest of the movie. This, this movie, nothing is accident. Every piece of this movie is intentional. And... Starting out with him playing chess, it absolutely is him stepping into like this. Everything is about being one step ahead. Everything is about um, predicting your opponent. Uh, 
The difference is this opponent that they have is completely alien to them. And for a while, they don't even know it is an opponent. They don't even know that there is something. I mean, obviously something bad happened to the Norwegian camp. Mm-hmm. But um, they don't know what. They don't know that the dog that they've invited in is a monster. Right. Now, if you know Norwegian, you would know that it was a monster. Because apparently, the actual Norwegian that they are speaking, they are saying, like, it's a monster. Don't let it get in. You know, or, I don't know exactly the words, but they are spoiling the movie if you are, knew that language. Gosh. And, you know, I... I, I, I've always wondered what they're saying at the beginning, if that would affect how watching this movie goes. It so, would. It oh, would, yeah. That's good to know. Yeah, um, no, I, that's one of the things that, you know, John Carpenter's movies, I'm not a, a huge fan of all of them, um, but I will say all of his movies are really well-crafted. And, and this is probably one of the heights of that, where it is so well crafted and and you know it's it's checkoffs everything <laughs> and if it's if it's at the beginning there's payoff at the end uh and this isn't the first time that John Carpenter has uh utilized uh uh Kurt Russell in one of his movies either and it won't be the last time i i, so the I think the first time was not big trouble in little china no because that was after this movie Big Trouble in China, I think, was 86. Yeah, but I do know where you're going with what the first time was. It was uh, Escape from New York. Wasn't there something before that? I don't think so. Didn't I, I think there was a TV movie that John Carpenter did. Maybe it wasn't John Carpenter. Are you talking about um, Elvis? Yeah. Um, That was a John Carpenter movie. I want to say that, that before. That's Escape one I don't own, but let me check real quick. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Kurt Russell played Elvis for him in the Made for TV movie. Yeah. So this is uh, a really strong uh, director actor professional relationship that they have here. And uh, Escape from New York. What what are your thoughts on that? You like it? Um, it was one of the first John Carpenter movies I ever saw. I saw that one back when I, my age only had one number in it. Uh, my, my dad. Oh, yep. You're right. Uh, Elvis was in 1979. Um, my dad was my, actually both my parents were very, there wasn't a lot that they didn't, that they didn't let me watch as a kid or they didn't let me watch with them rather. Um, so my cinematic upbringing was a lot different than a lot of, uh, I will, I, 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 am reluctant to use this phrase cause I don't want it. I don't want it to come across as being derogatory, but for a lack of better terms, uh, the, the church crowd, um, cause I, I didn't grow up initially going to church and all that sort of stuff. That kind of was a thing that happened later on in life. Um, so I, you know, when I was, a, when I was a child, I would watch movies like Rambo with my dad and stuff like that. And so we, we, you know, it was just one of those things, me and my dad, we watched escape from New York and, you know, at the time, like the computer graphics in it were so cool, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't even computer graphics. Well, you know, the, the whole, they had, they had like the vector mapping and stuff like that. Yeah, no, so, but you know how they did that? That was How's, a 3d 
city model that they put tape on. Oh, yeah? And then they just flew the camera over it. Oh, did not know that. Yeah, like this is... They created vector graphics by actually creating a physical thing to shoot. Well, I am I am today years old when I learned that. Um, but yeah, I, I I grew up and I dug that. And then when they came out with Escape from Los Angeles, I was into it because Snake Plissken I always thought was the one of the coolest characters ever. Uh, but that 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 was that brings me back around to my original point was because this was this movie was on the heels of Escape from New York, which was in 1981. Um, and uh, and it to me, McCready really felt a lot like the evolution of snake Plissken. I could see a lot of snake in him um, to the point where if you would have given him a patch over one eye, I think they would have their, their odds of survival probably would have gone up another 25%. (laughs) I I like McCready better. uh, Really? Yeah. He's the guy I would rather, you know, sit down and, and, you know, share a pizza with him. I could see that. Speaking of sharing a pizza, though, the rec room in this movie, when they showed that, I'm like, how can I get a job down in a research base in, in Antarctica? I'm like, for real. Yeah. Yeah. I, the whole setup of what's going on here, it's very much, I was really reminded of Alien. The difference is, of course, the paranoia that's going on. Oh, absolutely. Anyone could be the enemy. But I did like the just the cinema verite kind of thing where it's just this is a day in the life for them. This is, you know, it's it's scripted, but it's not it doesn't feel like a scripted um, moments. It feels like, hey, we've got stuff going on and it's life. You know, life is happening here with us. And I like how we're just dropped into it uh, with them. Um, Of course, life is interrupted by the dog and the Norwegians. But um, you spend just enough time with them at the beginning to get to know who they are and, and how they act and, and what their relationships are with each other. And and then the dog comes and and everything changes and, and you get to know them enough that you can appreciate the change and that it's not a good thing because no. people are going to die. So um, what else? What else are we missing before we go to. Uh, to 2011 on this you know there's so many things that you can plumb from from this movie i mean back 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 when this movie first came out i mean it it was critically panned just because of how visceral carpenter decided to get with this movie but i mean if you take that aside there's so many themes that you could really dive into on this movie the whole them versus us mentality the paranoia it's it's all just it's a it's a really good movie that just happens to have a tremendous amount of gore in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the unfortunate thing really to me, the only unfortunate thing with this other than maybe the gore being off putting to people is that it is so timeless that there are so many things in real life that you can look at and say, this is like real life, you know, uh, politically um, with, you know, the health situation with COVID and, and with um, social media even where, you know, who's who, what's what, are these people on my side or not? You know, right. just there's so much um, where you have these people and, and kind of bringing in the Christian side of things here. 
obviously they're aliens, so they are dehumanized, but the whole paranoia thing just allows them to dehumanize everyone so much quicker. Absolutely. And, but I, the reason why it's so timeless and it works like that is because it, it's not about one specific thing. Like the first, like right. the first movie was very much like huge allegory for the red scare, but this one in and of itself, you could almost say it's an allegory just for the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not about one specific thing. It's not about, it's not about AIDS, you know, and it's not right. about, you know, the red scare. Uh, although there are readings of that, that, that do say, you know, AIDS, which was something that you couldn't see. Someone could be carrying, you don't know until you see their blood. And in um, the eighties, that was a huge thing. It was, but I would say, I believe that it became a huge thing after the movie. Oh yeah. More... After the, after the fact, the movie moves forward with a new reading because of something that, and it's the same with COVID now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a new reading that you can you can bring to it. Um, but it is very much about the emotional stakes and the emotional states, you know. And you, you look at this, that's what makes it uh, timeless for me is that this is emotion that the emotion that the movie is creating in me is reflected in a lot of things in 2020. And that's the mark of a good movie. That's the mark of a great movie is when you're able to have uh, that's the mark of a great timeless movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, but the other thing talking about double features, this and E.T. came out same summer. For and, real? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was not uh, when when the thing came out, one of the things that caused it to not do well in the box office was because of. E.T., the extraterrestrial, came out, I think it was two weeks earlier and was still dominating the box office and it trounced this movie. And, and so you have these two movies, though, that thematically go in very different directions. But I do think if you can handle the thing, you know, um, to watch the thing and E.T. as a double feature, uh, just because they are so different, but at the same time, so similar. It, it, because it's about alien coming to earth and human interaction with that alien. I'm not saying they're similar in, in message or tone or things like that, but in just these, the most surface level of ideas and, and science fiction, they, they work as a double feature. Um, and finally I would, I would submit another double feature of this and Starman. Okay. Uh, because they're both John Carpenter alien movies. Yeah. But again, could, they take a very different tack from each other. I could, I could, I could one up that to a triple feature if you want to do John Carpenter movies. Okay. Um, add that with Village of the Damned. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Village of the Damned. That would be another. Uh, uh, spoiler, yeah, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen that movie. Uh, but uh, yeah, Village of the Damned is all about. Uh, it's a different type of an alien visitation situation. It's also a remake of a black and white movie. Also as well. Well, um, I think John Carpenter liked to play homage a lot to what he grew up in. Like very much in the same way that Quentin Tarantino likes to homage a lot of uh, the stuff that he grew up on watching movies uh, with. Uh, Carpenter did that, although in a let, 
more in the vein of I want to do that specific movie and just put my flavor into it rather than I'm going to make something adjacent to it like Tarantino did. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Carpenter borrows very heavily from a lot of his influences throughout all his movies. Well, and uh, Tarantino, I think, borrowed from this movie a little bit with uh, Hateful Eight because also Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. <laughs> um, but the, with her, with just the, the paranoia in the, uh, I haven't, that's, the that's, mercantile or whatever. There's only there's only two Tarantino movies I haven't seen: Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. I haven't seen those two, so I I wouldn't be able to speak on that. Another, if you're doing double features of a single filmmaker, that's another double feature to do because mm-hmm. the, they're both westerns. And, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I but I I would say that uh, incorporating Kurt Russell in this movie in uh, the Hateful Eight though I think that kind of goes back to his inclusion with. Uh, I'm forgetting what the name of uh, Tarantino's contribution to Grindhouse. The Grindhouse he double feature. He was not Planet Terror, was he? No, no, he was the other one. He was. Uh, it was the car one that he did. Mm-hmm. 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 Was it called? Uh, Death something. Death Proof. Death Proof. That's it. Yeah. Um, and I own that movie, and I I couldn't remember the name of it. Uh, but yeah, that was the first Tarantino movie that had uh that had Kurt Russell in it. Um. So I, it doesn't surprise me. I, I have a feeling that Kurt Russell is one of those ba- based off of everything I've seen of him. He's one of those people who are probably super easy to get along with. Yeah. Yeah. Although in I, death proof, he's very much the bad guy. Oh yeah. Very much so. Um, but again, he elevates that movie. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, if you ever want, if you ever want to talk about some grindhouse movies, I have some suggestions for you, but I have a feeling that's probably not going to happen on this podcast. <laughs> Probably not. Well, it depends. Did you ever see Hobo with a Shotgun? I did not see Hobo with a Shotgun. Ah, uh, it's a shame. That's a that's a really solid movie. It's it's hard to watch, but it's a really solid movie. <laughs> yeah. No, I knew enough about it. I mean, Rucker Howard is another one that he can make a bad movie good or better anyway. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's we're running out of time. I, uh, we're not running out of time, but we're using a lot of time. Let's yeah, talk sorry. about The Thing 2011. I get really um, chatty when we talk about movies I like. So, Well, and there's a lot to talk about when you like the movies. The question is The Thing 2011. Is there a lot to talk about for you in this movie? <laughs> Did you like this movie? Um, there's a lot to talk about. I, I will I will say this. Uh, well, when I walked into it, I, this was the one that I remembered the least because I've seen it the least amount of times. Um, have it written down. Yeah. This movie feels a bit inauthentic to me by comparison to the other two. And I, and I, I think that was the resounding feeling I had after watching this movie both times that I've seen it. Um, because I, I, I would, that's a good word to use. I think they don't spend the time trying to build the tension like they should, and instead they they just jump straight into the horror tropes. I mean, I don't dislike this movie, but it doesn't really feel like it's a part of the same series. I here's where I would go with this. If you look at Thing from Another World, right, mm-hmm. and then John Carpenter says, "I love that movie." I want to do that movie. 
but I'm going to do that movie with me doing that movie. And so he makes a completely different thing when he makes his movie. Uh, literally, there's a the, the thing in his movie is a very different uh, creature. Right. Um, he goes back to the original source material, but he's also doing homages to the original movie that he really loves. And and so here you have a filmmaker who is a fan of films, but he's doing his own thing when he does this movie that he's a fan of. The people who made The Thing 2011 were filmmakers who were fans of The Thing. Mm-hmm. And they did The Thing. They just copied it the it's it's it, that whole thing where it's not a sequel i mean it's not a prequel it's a remake you know it's it's both you know and and so it's uh that was the trend you know here in the the 2000s 2010s the teens mm-hmm. um the big complaint about the force awakens was it was just it's a sequel but it's also it's not a reboot but it is a remake you know and that's what they did with the thing it's a prequel and a remake at the same time and it really felt like they were just trying to redo something they loved and that's one criticism i've seen of filmmakers of my generation and younger is that they're not trying to make something new. They're trying to make, they're trying to remake what they loved. It's very true. And I, I actually just had a conversation with, uh, Paul from the retro rewind podcast, uh, on Facebook about this, uh, cause he was talking about how they're making a live action chip and Dale's rescue Rangers. And I hate that. Um, because a, a lot of, a lot of, modern filmmaking now is just regurgitating the same thing over and over again. And the problem is that the public just comes and slurps it right up and pays money for it. And so like people don't, they think that people don't want anything original because they pay for this. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it, it no, and, so they, and to some extent that, that that's true. You want to, if to some extent you want to walk into something and get what you paid for. You want to, walk into something that's safe that's comfortable that is something i know i like this so i'm going to watch this because it's the same it's cut from the same cloth or whatever um but then you have people taking very few risks and studios don't want to take the risks and so creators end up not making the risks and when you do take risks and try something different and make something new you you pay for it you know, you have people complaining that's too different. And so it, the the buying public, you know, you, which way is it going to be, you know, where it's just nostalgia and referencing uh, uh, like Ready Player One? Uh, or is it something new and fresh like the thing was when you take a look at the thing from another world? Right. And that's where John Carpenter as a creator is pushing things forward by giving his voice when he's remaking. And that's where I, at me as a creator, I'm hoping I'm able to give my own voice to something that maybe there is some things in it that feel familiar. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, and w- what I say when I talk to writers is there's nothing new under the sun. What's new is you and what you bring to it. And so you, you can complain about the new star Trek, but the new Star Trek is at least bringing something new to the table. And what's new? The people at 
the table. That's yeah. Just... Um, you asked me at the beginning of the podcast why I like John Carpenter. And I, th- I, I think after listening to you say that, I can give you a more definitive answer. Okay. Um, why I like John Carpenter is because he's always putting everything he puts out is something new that feels familiar. You know, the, the, the elements that he brings to it, that feels very John Carpenter has a very cozy John Carpenter feel to it. But every movie that he puts out is its own thing with the exception of, with the exception of, uh, escape from Los Angeles, which as I've grown older, I, I realize that movie is Drek, but I still need it. (laughs) Yeah. That one escape from Los Angeles actually goes against exactly everything I just said about him when it came to the thing, because that is (laughs) him redoing exactly what was done before only with better special effects, better computer generated effects. Anyway, no, (laughs) no, no to all of it. (laughs) Uh, But, um, and where, but back, getting back to, 2011 the thing where i appreciate what they're trying to double down on the whole it's still the 80s vibe at the beginning of the movie but then they cram stuff in there like who can it be now by men at work it it just it feels a bit ham-fisted like mm-hmm. see see it's the 80s we can do this and they and then the rest of the soundtrack that they have for the movie it's it's too it's too cinematic of a soundtrack for the type of movie that they're, that they're making. What they really should have done with this movie is they should have brought John Carpenter in to do the soundtrack. If they Here's what I felt like they were doing with the soundtrack. I felt like they were doing James Horner. I felt like they were doing aliens mm-hmm. in, in certain parts of the soundtrack. And the thing, one of the, the voices of the thing is like you said, the, the soundtrack now, Neo Morricone. I don't know how you say the guy's name, but the guy who's well known for good, bad and the ugly did some of the soundtrack for the thing, but not enough. And so John mm-hmm. Carpenter had to go in and, and do some of his own stuff with it too. So. But it, it, it really needs that heavy synth feel and mm-hmm. very, very minimalist going, putting forward. I mean, even if they didn't want to get John Carpenter, there's enough bands out there that are doing the whole synth wave scene. That's that is kind of big with the kids nowadays that they could have tapped at the time, like bands like gunship, where they could have brought them in and created something v- with a very similar feel that minimalistic because a lot, a lot of those synthwave bands, they will say, yes, John Carpenter is a huge influence on what we're doing. But here's the other thing I was thinking when I was watching it this time around is that it feels like this could have been what the thing from 1982 would have been if it had come after aliens in 1986. Um, because it felt like an alien-esque thing. They're still trying to keep that. Okay, we have this very small thing here, um, and it wasn't mil- It wasn't as military as Aliens, mm-hmm. but it felt more like the action movie that Aliens was. Like it was trying to be the action movie that Aliens was, instead I, of the paranoia movie that the thing was. I I thought about that when I was watching that, and I wanted to agree with that, but I would say more. I feel like they without trying to sound condescending um i feel like they dumbed it down i i because 82 was such a it was such a paranoia mind trip of okay who who is it who's who who's done it i feel like they felt like modern audiences couldn't follow a, a plot line like that so they felt the need to 
fill it with fill it more with spectacle rather than relying on uh, uh, tension based ambiance. Here's what brought up aliens for me. I, again, I feel like the soundtrack is what kind of got me thinking uh, about aliens with that. But um, let's talk about the, sp- the spectacle then and the special effects. This movie Ugh. was shot with practical effects. This movie had a practical effect team working on this movie. The only thing they retained from that practical effect team was the creature designs. But the studio, I think, felt like they were nervous. I don't know if it was bad or not. I don't know. But I think it was the studio interference that said, no, CGI. We're so gonna bad. Do CGI. It was so bad. It, 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 the CGI at the time this came out, whereas it was a little bit better by a little bit better by comparison, it still wasn't it, it still reminded me of the mummy two and seeing Dwayne, the rock Johnson at the end. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it, it still felt very video gamey to me. It, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't. It, here's, here's one thing that would help you with that. If you were to watch it on a small screen, like an iPad, like I did this time <laughs> around, it didn't bother me as much this time around because I was watching it on my iPad. The first time I saw this movie, I was watching it on my, not big screen TV. I don't, I've never had a big screen TV, but, but a larger screen in, in a room, you know, where I'm sitting across the room and, mm-hmm. um, and it's not great. It's not. And, but the, the studio said, Nope, we're not using the practical effects. I'm not sure how much, um, actually did get done. Um, but scenes were shot and changed and, um, other scenes I think might've been shot and with the, with CGI as the intention. Um, but the, Here's where I'm going to throw another movie at you and see if you've seen this. And this is the one where I would say, um, whereas Horror Express, I was like, yeah, I recommend it. Um, this is the one where if you haven't seen this, John, listeners, watch it. Uh, now, it's been a while since I've seen it. OK, so I might be forgetting something about it that would be, you know, take it out of the running for being a recommendation from me. So maybe I should actually look up and see what, why it's rated R. But um I don't remember anything uh, nudity wise, but it is of a piece with these movies because the team that did the practical effects for this movie here, 2001's The Thing, or 2011's The Thing, rather, um, they did a movie called Harbinger Down. And that movie, it actually, the title screen came up and it said, I can't remember the date, June something, 1982. I'm like, I think that's there for a reason. And it was. That's actually the date that um, that the thing in 1982 was released. And it very much it retreads all the same ground as far as um, some of the paranoia, some of the cold. There's even Cold War stuff in this movie, um, even though it's set in you know 1980, whatever. Um, and then it oh, jumps to the present day, I think, if I remember the, Ber- the Berlin correctly. Wall didn't the Berlin Wall didn't come down until 1990. So we were still full swing Cold War in the 80s. Yeah, I I can't remember, though, if it takes place all in the 80s or if it jumped to the present day. Mm-hmm. I just know it starts there. Um, and then but one of the main cast is a Russian and they actually do have some. I'm pretty sure they moved to the present day with it as mm-hmm. Lan- Lance Henriksen in it, though, um, who lends some uh, a weight and gravity to it 
Um, I don't know if you watched the season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where Coulson came back as a bad guy, but the the big guy from his posse is in this movie, um, and he's he's a very pleasant uh, presence on the screen. Um, and it definitely it follows all the same beats. It takes place on a ship uh, that's out in the ice uh, of I can't I th- I'm pretty sure it's it's the Arctic. Um, yeah, yeah, it is because the Russian actually says I can see Alaska from my house. <laughs> I so well, that's a Sarah Palin reference right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but okay, so. At first, I thought I hadn't seen this, and then now that you said Lance Henriksen takes place on a ship and it's up in the ice, I watched it forever ago, and I remember nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. It's this team saying, this is what we would have done, basically, oh. and and doing the same kind of effects. Uh, it's the same kind of storyline as the thing. Um it hits all the same beats. It really does. But so again, it's, it's not pushing forward. It's not moving the story in a different direction. Um, but, but it absolutely is a modern horror practical effect, uh, movie. And, yeah. and that's why I recommend it. Nice. Um, and I think the other thing and, uh, spoiler alert listeners, I'm about to spoil the end of this movie. Um, the other thing that really rubbed me wrong about this movie and made it feel very inauthentic was the deus ex machina they pull with the writing at the end of this movie where just suddenly and it hasn't been mentioned at all during the whole movie but suddenly there's a russian camp that's just x amount of miles away that the lady could go to after she finds out that the guy doesn't have his earring. So obviously he's the thing. Um, it's never been mentioned in, in this movie. And, and it's just like, so the lady gets a happy ending at the end of this movie instead of the, instead of the bleak, uncertain mm-hmm. ending that these movies, these, these movies, the type the type of movies that these are, they don't, they're not supposed to have a happy ending. They're not supposed to, ha- there's not a happily ever after the characters aren't supposed to, you either die or you end in, or it ends in uncertainty. And yeah, here's the thing that takes that a step further. And that is that this being a prequel, you know how most of these characters are going to end up. And yeah. that is dead. Now they have to get the woman out of there because there was not a woman found in the camp in 1982 is the thing. Right. What I'm saying though is fine. Get her out. They got her out of there. They took her to the big spaceship thing where she had the face off with the alien in the control room there. You know, I mean, she could have, she could have just disappeared. She could have just disappeared out in the Arctic tundra. Like instead of having just magically having two of the, uh, tractors out there, you know, um, and then, Hey, I'm going to just drive to this Russian camp that we've never mentioned in the movie any other time. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive with the, how these movies are supposed to go. You're not. So, I mean, 
it's it's just another situation where I, I feel like they monkeyed with how these movies are supposed to be just for a modern audience. I, I, I think, I think that the people are so afraid that the modern audience won't get it, that they feel the need to spoon feed everything. And that's just sad. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll say this though. I, I do appreciate that this movie, the, the looming sense of dread in this movie literally is the next movie chronologically. <laughs> these people are going to die. And not only that, two of these people are going to get killed in the next movie. Right. Um, um, and, and, and I, I'm not a huge fan of, Hey, we have to know how every single thing uh, came to be. And so we have to know why does Han Solo wear this kind of belt and why does, you know, we, and so you have the movie solo that's literally are just to show us every single piece of what we know about Han Solo when we meet him in a new hope. Um, this is why he wears a vest. This is why he does this. This is why, the, you know, all solo does not need to exist to tell us every single beat like that. Now, some people like that. Evan does. Evan loved that about the movie solo. That was my one ding on solo was as, as much as I like the movie as a sci-fi Western kind of thing. Um, they didn't need to tell me every single thing. I don't need to know why does Indiana Jones wear a fedora? Can't it just be because he likes fedoras? You know, I don't need, I don't need to see the whole segment in 15 minutes of the last crusade. That's, that's my one ding for last crusade is that they do the 15 minutes at the beginning of, of him as river Phoenix, um, getting the whip, getting the scar, getting the hat, getting the, this, getting the, that, uh, we don't need to see that, you know, mm-hmm. but they do a good job in the thing. 2011, my complaint aside, showing you, oh, this is why the axe is here. This is why this person's here. This is why this creature is here. Um, you do get to see how all these things fell into place. And and so craft-wise, I'll give them that. They did a decent job of creating a story that put those pieces into place um, that didn't feel like uh, just fan service. All right, so what you just said there sparked two thoughts in me. Uh, one original, one not so much. Uh, um, but uh, it's pretty sad when the best part of a movie you're watching is the previous movie that it's following up. Because <laughs> so, literally, you said the tension of this movie is because of what happens in the in the eighty two the thing, and I'm like, that's kind of sad that the best part of this movie is a different movie altogether. <laughs> well, you're, you're not wrong. The, the only thing that goes along with that is um, that's what tragedy is. You know, tragedy is when there is an inevitable bad ending that the characters don't know that they're going toward. Right. And so you as the viewer uh, and what was interesting for me is, of course, I saw the thing 1982 first. I saw that before 2011 um, when 2011 rolls around. I'm pretty sure I didn't see this in the theater, but I rented it mm-hmm. and saw it soon afterward. Um, when I rewatched this time, I watched the thing from another world. And then I watched the thing 2011. Oh, you no, no. It. I watched the thing 2011 first because that was the one that I could find for free to stream. Okay. And I didn't have the DVD nearby. And then I watched the thing from another world. And then I watched the thing to, from 1982. Okay. For so, there, I thought you were pulling an Evan and you watched them in story order. Well, I kind of, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. The point <laughs> is the prequel 
2011. I watched that before 2000, before the 1982 movie mm-hmm. and watching it that way um, made me appreciate 2011 a little bit because mm-hmm. as I'm watching 2011, I'm saying, oh, this is getting me ready for this. This is getting me ready for that. Yeah. What happens to the lady? I don't remember, but I know she's not into in 1982. So something happens to her, you know, and, and she went to the magical Russian camp that appeared at the end of the movie. Yeah. So the other thought I had during your little monologue you had, though, which isn't related to the Thing movies, but it's a fan theory I heard that I think you might take interest in. And I just thought of it because you brought up Han Solo. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Indiana Jones. Um, Indiana Jones is just a fever dream Tom Solo had uh, that Han Solo had when he was encased in carbonite. I'm not the biggest fan of that. (laughs) Why would he have a fever dream about literal historical Earth? He, he wouldn't because it's he wouldn't know that it's historical earth that's just it but it is but we know it is but he wouldn't know that it is i'm not saying he should know what it is i'm saying why I, yeah i'm not the biggest fan of that kind of uh <laughs> thing i i thought you're gonna go with something that some other movie connection to these things oh no no it, you brought up you brought up you brought up han solo and indiana jones ah, and then gotcha. that that's what sparked that connection for me no, um, but as as far as these movie, this movie is concerned, it's it's my least favorite of the three, just because it does feel so inauthentic. Um, it's a lot like okay, I'm I for most people who have heard me talk on other podcasts know that I'm a musician, so and I'm a big music fan. Uh, I will say that. Watching the thing 2011 is a lot like watching going to see a tribute band. Yeah, it, it hits yep. the tr- it hits the tropes well, but it's not the same thing as seeing the actual the actual item. But even with that said, it is kind of fun sometimes to watch the tribute band. Oh, absolutely! Just like you know, it's, sometimes it's fun to have donuts for breakfast. You're not going to get the nutrition of a complete breakfast, but you know, sometimes. You know, you're in the mood for a bacon maple bar. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. The thing and the thing from another world. Thing cubed. Yeah. Yeah. Cube. That's another. Uh, Canadian, another too. Yeah, it is. And I have all three of those. It is. Cube. Cube two hypercube and, and then cube, cube zero, zero, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Those I remember watching those. Uh Cube Zero came out later, and I think I watched that streaming. But I remember renting Cube and Cube Two and cringing a lot. <laughs> uh just waiting for the kills to happen. Like it was I, I felt I was very tense with those movies. Let's put it um Going back to that, uh, going back to that Canadian podcast that doesn't exist anymore, horror, etc. Um, they were the ones who uh, switched me onto the Cube movies. Uh, the way they the way they described it is it was Canada's response to the Saw movies. Yeah, yeah, because it is a much more polite torture porn. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> With that said, I think it's time for final words. So. 
Hey, uh, John, where can people find you on the web? Oh, goodness. Um, I am one of the many cast members of Supersonic Pod Comics. Uh, I'm, I'd imagine anybody who listens to Strangers and Aliens is aware of Supersonic Pod Comics. But if you're not, feel free to go check us out on the Face Space. We have a group there that I like to interact with um, and go listen to our stuff because it's really cool. And things are phase one is starting to wind down. We're going into our infinity war. Um, what else is there? I have a uh, supersonic pod comics adjacent podcast called playing games with strangers where me and several of the other cast members from supersonic uh, play dungeons and dragons. And, uh, and we uh, do an actual play podcast with that. So you can come hang out with us at the table and listen to our narrative uh, check. So you can check us out there as well. Um, And I don't know if I said it while we were but a uh, future project, me and Mr. Steve McDonald, fellow stranger and alien, uh, are trying to set up a our own podcast called John and Steve Do Stuff. So that's another thing that uh, is coming down the pike. Uh, look for that sometime soon. And I think that's it for the time being. I, I, ever, ever, ever since you sparked, you guys sparked the desire to become a podcaster in my brain with strangers and aliens, I've just taken it and run. So I'm going to become my own McElroy family. <laughs> all right. All right. With all that said, thanks, John, for joining me here. Yeah. Um, really appreciate it. And it's always fun to talk, uh, talk horror movies with you. And in this case, you know, it's that that annual Halloween time, and yeah. but being being as we brought it up, next year we should do the Cube trilogy. I I think there's some value there. <laughs> it's not the greatest franchise ever, for sure. Um, but they do manage with uh, with Cube two and with with Origin, uh, with the the zero episode, um, to push things further. And yeah, there there's stuff to talk about for sure. For sure. So, thank you everyone for listening. We appreciate it. You can find us on the web in our credits. We'll talk to you about Facebook and all that stuff and uh, our website, strangersandaliens.com. For now, I just want to say again, thanks for listening. Thanks for spending time with us. And uh, wherever you go, you know, and no matter how filled with paranoia you might be, um, I want to wish you Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jason Neal. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter where we are at strangeandalien.com or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-37-ALIEN. And once again, thanks for listening.
Durf.